am Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry, where we tackle social, political, and cultural issues from the perspective of unapologetic guests while highlighting citizen activists doing amazing things throughout the country. America is carving out a new history. For only the third time, we have impeached a president. At the center of this drama is Ukraine, a nation many of us know almost nothing about. But my guest today, Andrea Chalupa, does. Andrea is a journalist, filmmaker, host of the excellent podcast Gaslit Nation, and expert in all things Ukraine. Our conversation covers the recent history of that country, authoritarian regimes and their effects on the world, election hacking, and Andrea's personal family history in Ukraine. Enjoy. Should Ukraine have closer ties to the U.S. and Europe or Putin's Russia? It started as a peaceful protest in one of Europe's busiest capitals. Today, it exploded into massive violence and bloodshed. A Russian invasion of Ukraine. Russian troops spreading out throughout the uh, strategic Crimean Peninsula. President Obama speaking with Russian President Vladimir Putin, apparently pulling no punches. Here's a closer look at Ukraine's leader. He's a first-time politician who won a landslide victory in May with more than 73% of the vote. He beat Petro Poroshenko, who he argued did little to combat rampant corruption. Manafort worked in Ukraine for years, mostly advising former President Viktor Yanukovych, a leader backed by Russian President Vladimir Putin. We unseal an indictment charging Lev Parnas, Igor Fruman, and two co-defendants for their alleged participation in schemes to violate the federal campaign finance laws by repeatedly using straw donors and foreign money. What do you think is the main inaccuracy or the main lie that's being told that you feel like you can correct? that the president didn't know what was going on. Uh, President Trump knew exactly what was going on. Uh, He was aware of all my movements. The impeachment trial of President Trump is now underway. Uh, You might remember from that call that President Zelensky thanks President Trump for the Javelin anti-tank weapons and says they're ready to order some more. And what is President Trump's immediate response? I have a favor to ask, though. My call was perfect. The president yesterday of Ukraine said there was no pressure put on him whatsoever. Russian hackers allegedly targeted the Ukrainian gas company at the center of President Trump's impeachment. Hi, I'm Andrea Chalupa. I'm a journalist and filmmaker. I produced my own screenplay and I produced my own podcast, Gaslit Nation. I'm sorry, not sorry. Thank you, Andrea, for joining us. There is just so much that I want to talk to you about, not only because you're brilliant, but also because I think your perspective on things is unique and important. So if you can discuss a little bit about your family's history. I understand that your your parents were actually born in refugee camps. Yeah. So both my mom and my dad were born in refugee camps as World War II was winding down to a close. And they both immigrated to the U.S. by ship 
One of the first things my mother saw as a little girl when she was coming into New York Harbor was the Statue of Liberty, and she never forgot it. She just remembers that image so perfectly in her mind, like looking up at the Statue of Liberty and how beautiful she looked, and that was her first impression of America. And so for me, growing up Ukrainian-American, I was always raised to be very proud of being in a country that welcomed refugees. Our track record hasn't, of course, always been perfect on that. Um, The U.S. did turn away refugees fleeing totalitarianism of World War II, so we don't have the perfect record on that. But generally, there was this belief that immigrants are an important part of the American story, that immigrants have made our country stronger and better, and that we are a melting pot, and that that is something that we should all be proud of. So growing up with that, especially with understanding of Ukraine and uh, Ukraine's long struggle for freedom from colonial rule under Moscow, was also a part of what I understood a lot about the world, how I saw the world. And so I had a very strong framework of Ukraine and why Ukraine mattered. And after university, I studied Soviet history at UC Davis. After university, I went to the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute. I lived in Ukraine for several months studying, researching. And I really thought how obscure my focus was going to be in life, that I would choose this country. Yeah, super obscure. (laughs) I was like, I'm throwing my career down the drain by just putting all my money on Ukraine. Who's going to really care about this? Yeah. And so it turned out to be, unfortunately, for horrible reasons, very convenient area of, of expertise. And so a lot of my focus really you know, as working as a journalist for many years, my my big passion project for the last 14, 15 years has been writing, researching, producing a screenplay uh, called Mr. Jones, which is about the incredible real-life young independent journalist from Wales, a young ambitious guy who went out into Ukraine, risked his life and career to expose Stalin's genocide famine in Ukraine, which my grandfather lived through. And he comes out, blows the lid off this thing, and eventually gets killed under mysterious circumstances, and, and some research suggests by the Kremlin secret police. But his work lives on in a book called Animal Farm. So I show George Orwell in my script. I show him as a Greek chorus, the words of Animal Farm, narrating this young man's journey to get the truth out into the world. And I'm very proud to say that that film is going to be released this year, 2020, in March or April of this year through Goldwyn Films. And it's starring the incredible James Norton, who's also in Little Women by Greta Gerwig, who got robbed of a Best Oscar nomination, as we all know now, unfortunately, and also stars Vanessa Kirby and Peter Sarsgaard. And that's an incredible real-life, you know, inspired by true events, historical drama about how the Kremlin's corruption, especially the Kremlin's disinformation war, cannot be successful without the help of corruption in the West. And unfortunately, this film that I began as a passion project 15 years ago is is now a mirror to where we are now today in the world. These people led simple lives in small towns and villages before the Ukrainian revolution a year ago. Shortly afterwards, Russian President Vladimir Putin sparked a revolt in eastern Ukraine by residents who feel a traditional cultural allegiance to Russia and fear Ukraine's shift to the West. But these refugees, although Russian speakers from the same area, feel the opposite and have had their lives turned upside down. Yesterday, I brought my 90-year-old mother here because during the night a shell landed at 10 p.m. right outside our window and everything was blown to pieces. I saw the explosions. I saw the shelling. I was afraid to sleep at night. I was afraid if I fell asleep, the house would blow up. 
you mentioned Mr. Jones. And I want to talk a little bit about that. And I want to hear about your grandfather's story. Yes. And I'm wondering if that played into Mr. Jones. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Without question. So, you know, all of us growing up, we had that person in our lives that was the world to us. And for me, that was my grandfather, Didlonia. His name was Alexi, but I knew him as my Didlonia. And he used to take me to donuts and hot chocolate. And that was our Sunday mornings, Saturday mornings. And I would sing songs to Little Mermaid at the top of my lungs for him. And he thought I was just an amazing singer, as all, grand- <laughs> as all grandparents do, of their grandchildren. And so right before he passed away, he left me an incredible gift. He wrote down his entire life story in, in oh Ukrainian. God. Yeah. So he wrote about his life story. And... When I was old enough, as I mentioned, I I went to Ukraine and I found a translator and I got his words translated back while I was living in Ukraine. And I got to read about his incredible, incredible life experience of being a little boy on his family farm and watching the Tsar's army being pulverized by barefoot and tattered Bolshevik soldiers. And then seeing the massive transformation of communism, you know, priests being arrested, teachers disappearing. And then as a young father, he was arrested during Stalin's purges and tortured and forced to sign a confession along with countless others across the Soviet Union. And he also lived through Stalin's genocide famine in Ukraine and witnessed horrific, horrific events that that are just nightmarish to describe. And did you know this growing up? Or was this something you discovered through his writings? I was very lucky that my parents, both my mother and father, were open to talk about it. And that's not the case for all families that come from this kind of background. In fact, in my research and trying to interview famine survivors for my film, I found a lot of people that came up with resistance in their own family because the trauma is so great. We're talking about families in Ukraine forced into cannibalism in order to survive. It strips you of your dignity, what you're forced to go through under a genocide. And there's a lot of shame that comes with that. And unfortunately, that shame is a weapon that pushes the victims further into silence. As a mom, actor, designer, author, activist, and business owner, (laughs) I know what it's like to be busy and just how distracting uncomfortable clothes can be. And that's why I love Beta Brand's dress pant yoga pants. These pants look great anywhere I go, and they are so comfortable. Seriously, I look professional enough for any meeting I need to go to, but feel like I'm in my PJs. It's the best of both worlds. Whatever your style, Beta Brand has the pants to match. Choose from dozens of colors, patterns, cuts, and styles like boot cut, straight leg, skinny, cropped, and more. They even have a pair with eight, yes, eight, pockets. And now they also offer premium denim with the same flexibility and comfort as yoga pants. Right now, our listeners can get 20% off their first order when you go to betabrand.com slash Alyssa, A-L-Y-S-S-A. That is 20% off your first order at betabrand.com slash Alyssa. Millions of women agree that these are the most comfortable pants that you'll ever wear. Go to betabrand.com slash Alyssa, A-L-Y-S-S-A, for 20% off. I know just from my family history, which is clearly not as in-depth or gut-wrenching as yours, but 
it seems like when they evolve out of any sort of trauma, right, our families. My mom, what she has been able to do in one generation as far as breaking the pattern of violence and trauma and poverty, it's mind-blowing. But Mm -hmm. she doesn't want to talk about it. (laughs) She doesn't want to talk about it because she did it. She succeeded that. And so I think that a lot of our history, our personal history gets lost because people don't want to go back to that trauma and teach us. But it's such a vital part of the fabric of who we are because of what is imprinted even subconsciously onto our beings from our families, how we're raised. Yeah, without question. And to that point, they take it for granted. They want to shove it down and put it behind them, not realizing that having a primary source, writing down your stories, that's going to be treasured for future generations because it becomes a snapshot of this moment in time and it helps us understand history and therefore ourselves better. My grandfather, he wasn't a writer. He was an engineer. And so the fact that he wrote down his entire life story, he showed the events that Orwell allegorized in Animal Farm Mm. through the eyes of an individual that survived them. So writing down his life events, he did that as a form of therapy. He did that because he had to get that out. And I'm so grateful that he did that. And it's just such a unique and rare gift to have that in my family. And what it's done is it empowered me to go out and make this film. And even though I wrote a journalistic thriller, so it's it's not a documentary. I mean, there's actors and there's romance and action and it's a political thriller. But having an artistic project like this has created a space for me to confront this dark chapter in my family's history and help have sort of a a safer place in which to explore these issues and and ultimately heal from them. And learn the lessons from them, not only you, but those that are able to watch. And I think that's the beauty of filmmaking and storytelling. And also just the fact that people can relate in a little sense of a character or something allowing them to escape into this world and learn those lessons is so vital. Do you think that there's any lessons that we can draw today from Animal Farm? Do you think it's still relevant? Oh, without question. I think it's very important because Animal Farm is about how revolutions can be opportunistic and corrupting. And right now in America and in many parts of the world, from Iran to Hong Kong and Russia today even, there is a revolutionary spirit that is growing among the people. And when you have the pressures of the climate crisis and growing income inequality, that revolutionary spirit is just going to grow more intense. Animal Farm is a urgent and timely reminder that you have to judge a revolution by the fruit that it bears. You can't fall into some strict code or social pressure. If a leader, if a revolution is is making good progress and, and we are seeing the quality of life improving, we are seeing leaders that make us feel included, that make us feel heard, that put a focus on healing and dignity. That's important fruit as a revolution is being born. And that's how you ultimately have to judge a revolution is just making sure that it's as healing and inclusive and gives people back their dignity. President Yanukovych dug in, Ukraine's parliament passing a law banning demonstrations. With these foolish laws, Yanukovych proved to everyone that he is scared of us and he is using his last strength to keep the power. But he will lose because there are millions of us. I'm here because I want to live in a free European country. 
I think too many people fall into the trap of you're either for us or against us. And if you're daring to question our ideas or authority, you're the enemy. And if you don't allow that open space for dialogue and greater understanding and everyone having a place to be heard, then revolutions can easily deteriorate into autocracy. So did you ever think as you were getting your degree in Soviet history that Russia and Ukraine would become such major players in domestic politics? No, and I'm still I'm still getting used to how surreal that feels. So, it's so yeah. crazy. Yeah. It's beyond weird. It's beyond weird. <laughs> yep. And so I obviously started off my film, Mr. Jones, that whole journey to honor my grandfather. It was a personal project, and I had the massive disadvantage of you know trying to shop around a script and try to build a coalition of supporters when no one really cared or knew anything about Ukraine. Like, I kept hearing from people, oh, Ukraine, you mean Russia? No, they're two very different countries. It's just been really surreal to see suddenly uh, Americans on Twitter be Ukraine experts and sound a lot like I did over the last 10 years or so. You know, So in some sense, I'm very heartened by it because I think the U.S. needs to learn a lot of lessons from Ukraine if we're going to secure ourselves against insidious Kremlin aggression. Like what? Oh, dear Lord. I mean, the list is long. From cyber warfare, Kremlin successfully hacked Ukraine's grid. They could easily do that to us here in the States. And also, the Kremlin successfully hacked Ukraine's election results of their presidential election. That could happen here in the U.S. as well. There's there's ways that that could be done, as we know. Also, I'm wondering if you see any parallels between what Stalin did in Ukraine and Eastern Europe and what's happening today in our southern border. Well, the one thing people have to understand is that authoritarianism, the reason why Orwell is timeless is because authoritarianism relies on the same playbook. There's nothing creative about it. There's always going to be a scapegoating of vulnerable communities, and there's always going to be a dehumanization by the state against these vulnerable communities. And that includes, of course, the mass arrests and the separating of families. I mean, that's what goes on under authoritarianism. An autocrat needs real or imagined enemies within and without in order to embolden his base. And as we see with Trump, he's base first. He serves his base. Even though he lost the popular vote, he still puts a minority of our country, their white supremacist interests above the majority of the country that wants to live in a far different America than Trump's America. It really is amazing how he seems to not give a fuck about the rest of the country, the majority of the country who does not think the way he does. His whole MO is, I'm going to play to my base, play to the audience, yeah. know your room, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's really, it's mind-boggling. And I don't think we've seen anything like it in American politics ever from that perspective alone. Then you add all the other stuff and you go, yeah, of course we've seen nothing like it. But just to have a president who is supposed to represent the entire country and all of our different ideologies and all of our different backgrounds and religions, he just doesn't give a fuck. No, without question. I mean, he's just not in touch at all with humanity. He's, he's operating like a mob boss. As we sit here testifying, the president is attacking you on Twitter. Um, and I'd like to give you a chance to respond. I and others have demonstrably um, made things better, you know, for the U.S. as well as for the countries uh, that I've served in. 
uh, Ukraine, for example, where there are huge challenges, including, you know, on the issue that we're discussing today of, of corruption. And now the president in real time is attacking you. What effect do you think that has on other witnesses' willingness to come forward and expose wrongdoing? Well, uh, it's very intimidating. Giuliani and Parnas saw the former American ambassador to the Ukraine, Marie Ivanovich, as an obstacle. And text messages provided by Parnas suggest she may have been under physical surveillance. And that's that's what autocrats ultimately are. It's just corruption. It's a mafia state. That's Putin's Russia. That's what Erdogan's done to Turkey. It's just they rely on force, intimidation, and mafia tactics, essentially, in order to consolidate power. I think to really understand how the Zelensky phone call with Trump was a no-no, we need to understand a little bit more about Ukraine and what is going on there right now. So can you describe a little bit about what's going on and what has gone on just with Russian military actions? What exactly is happening in the country that makes that phone call so substantial? All right. So you have to go back to fall 2013. Hundreds of thousands of pro-democracy Ukrainians in the streets today protested against the results of the presidential election. Guns were used on both sides, resulting in the deaths of 25 protesters and police. It all began on the 21st of November 2013. The Ukrainian president, Viktor Yanukovych, announced that he would not sign an agreement which had taken five years to negotiate between his country and the European Union. Yanukovych in favour instead of closer ties with Russia. Say 34 civilians were killed in a 24-hour period period with another 29 injured. Ukraine used to be stuck under Viktor Yanukovych, who was a Kremlin puppet. Just think of him as the Donald Trump of Ukraine. They both love gold, they both were beholden to Putin, and they both hired Paul Manafort to bring them to power. So Yanukovych was brought to power with the help of Paul Manafort, who would later, of course, become Trump's campaign chairman and help him win the White House in 2016. And now Manafort's in prison for a long list of crimes. So Yanukovych was overthrown in a popular uprising. And this was a popular uprising in Ukraine that brought together Ukrainians from all walks of life because Yanukovych, his corruption was just absolutely blatant. He stole an estimated $40 billion. There's some estimates that said he stole $100 billion from the Ukrainian people from their tax money, essentially using Ukraine's budget as a piggy bank. And under his corruption, he weakened the Ukrainian military and brought Ukraine deeper into the Kremlin's sphere of influence, even though he came to power promising to bring Ukraine closer to Europe and sign this all-important EU association agreement, which was going to more politically align Ukraine with Europe and help bring Ukraine a standard of doing things up to the EU level. And that's what Ukraine's really wanted. And through that gaslighting by Yanukovych, that's why they voted for him. It was the old, like, promise one thing and, and deliver another. And that was a campaign that was managed by Paul Manafort that helped him sort of create that messaging and remake himself into this candidate that Ukrainians could vote for. And as soon as Yanukovych became president, he locked up 
his political opponent, Yulia Tymoshenko, put her in prison, which was a, you know, a civil rights violation in Ukraine. And when the protests were growing against him, he illegally, his party swiftly illegally passed a series of laws cracking down on freedom of speech and other civic rights in Ukraine, which became known as the dictatorship laws. And they had riot police shooting and kidnapping protesters. And it was a horrific revolution that I saw Kiev literally on fire and government snipers sh like shooting protesters. And Yanukovych fled town because the people themselves, not the US, not the CIA, not the EU, it was the people themselves that risked their lives, put their lives on the line to drive Yanukovych out of town. And there's even a powerful moment where EU delegates came in to try to broker a peace deal between the protesters and Yanukovych's government. And a young man jumped up on stage in, in the heart of Kiev, in, this, in the center of the sea of protesters, and this young man grabbed the microphone from the speaker and said, Yanukovych has until tomorrow to leave town or we're storming his castle. And Yanukovych got out. He fled. And he's now in Russia. So I just want to make clear that this was people power. This was a rare, successful, popular uprising. And it led to a peaceful election that saw the Ukrainians vote for an overwhelmingly for a pro-Western president. And as punishment for Ukrainians overthrowing his puppet, Putin swiftly invaded Crimea, and then he invaded um, eastern Ukraine. And that war has displaced an estimated 2 million people. The death toll is something like 10 to 15,000. That's just estimated. But the first shots in Moscow's occupation of Crimea have already been fired as Russian troops confronted 200 members of the Ukrainian Air Force over control. Russian of troops base. smashed their way into Ukraine's Crimea air base. Backed by armoured vehicles, gunfire and stun grenades, special forces supported by pro-Russian militia stormed While the military compound. While we were at the school, we hear a house nearby has been hit by an artillery shell. Homeowner Boris Sverdanov shows me the damage. He says he moved his daughter and wife out of the area only the day before. He had a strong feeling two days ago that his daughter was in danger and that he had to get her out of the village. Thousands of bullets are exchanged every single day along this contact line, ranging from automatic weapons to 152 millimeter artillery, and the body count is only rising. In February 2015, both sides signed an internationally brokered agreement aimed at finding a political solution. But the repeated attempts at a ceasefire have failed. Both sides blame each other for starting a recent escalation in violence. Putin is driven to destabilize Ukraine, to basically send a message that popular uprisings don't work. So he's trying to punish Ukrainians themselves for exercising their voice or their, their right to exercise freedom. And what has happened is I've been in Kiev and I've met with civic leaders that are working with Russian civic leaders. So Kiev itself has become a hotbed for the Russian resistance. And so Ukrainian organizers on the ground have said to me that they're keeping the flame of revolution warm for when Russia's ready. And so that's really Putin's big fear. He's afraid of the Russian people. That's his number one fear. And so right now, it's like he's trying to engineer a way to stay in power until he dies. Like Putin's driven to die in power because he doesn't want to let go of the reins. He's right now arguably the richest man on the planet, just his hidden wealth alone. And plus, if you factor in all the Russian oligarchs that he has under his thumb and their collective wealth. 
And so Putin's not going to give all that up. And he's terrified of these anti-corruption protests, kids that are getting dragged by riot police and and getting thrown into the back of vans and, and beaten. He has this sadistic army of riot police that are clamping down violently on these anti-corruption protests. But they keep growing because what Putin has done to Russia, it's not sustainable. It's not sustainable. And we, I really believe that we're going to see a post-Putin Russia in our lifetime. And there is a chance for Russia to become an open society because Putin is just typical mafia boss that's holding the country hostage with sweeping corruption. But there is growing pushback against that. So knowing that, and I would like to think Trump is downloaded on the history because we all know he doesn't know that for sure. He's never studied it, I'm, I'm sure. Knowing all of that, being downloaded, tell me about the importance of a quid pro quo on the phone call. That is absolutely heartbreaking. So Democrats and Republicans are overwhelmingly united with supplying military aid to Ukraine, because as I mentioned, that's a country whose military was depleted under Yanukovych. And so Ukraine is right now fending off invasion by the second most powerful military in the world, and that's, of course, Russia. And so they desperately need this military aid. And Trump coming in like a mob boss, putting the military aid on hold that Congress promised Ukraine, that Congress overwhelmingly, in a bipartisan vote, promised Ukraine, and holding that aid in exchange for Ukraine's government inventing a scandal against Trump's political rival, Joe Biden, in the 2020 race. I mean, that's extortion, plain and simple. Now had a chance to review in detail the notes of the call between the president of the United States and the president of Ukraine. Congratulations on a great victory. After sharing pleasantries, Trump quickly changed the subject. He alluded to the billions of dollars in military aid the U.S. has given Ukraine in the last few years. Uh, it is shocking that the White House uh, would release these notes uh, and felt that somehow this would help the president's case or cause. Because what those notes reflect is a classic mafia-like shakedown of a foreign leader. I would like you to do us a favor, though. What Trump said next, according to a rough transcript released by the White House, forms the core of the impeachment proceedings against him. It could end his presidency. There's a lot of talk about Biden's. This 30-minute phone call might become one of the most important moments in American history. That's basically Trump being caught in doing in the 2020 election what he did in 2016. In 2016, as the Mueller report clearly showed, Trump and his surrogates openly welcomed a foreign government to attack our election, to interfere in our election in order to help bring him to power. And the Zelensky call is Trump trying to do it again, but this time through Ukraine. It's heartbreaking because in the time when he put pressure on Ukraine's new president, Zelensky, who, who was voted overwhelmingly, he won the vast majority of the vote. Ukrainians wanted him to end the war with Putin, to come to some sort of resolution so Ukrainians could stop being killed, and also fight corruption. That was another big war that Ukrainians are waging. So Zelensky has a lot of pressure on him. And on top of that, he's being pressured by the the president of the United States. So it, it, it's a heartbreaking scenario. With The other thing we don't think about is what withholding military aid does on a really human level. We hear about these terms like withholding military aid, and we think that that's really just about uh, a military stronghold or used for war in the military. But break that down on a human level for me. What does that do to the Ukrainian people? It's certainly demoralizing. 
the Ukrainian people live in the shadow of the Kremlin's aggression. It's something that is in their families. The trauma that we talked about at the start of this interview, about you know the trauma of surviving Stalin's genocide famine in Ukraine. Under Putin, Stalin has been resurrected as a great Russian hero. In fact, there's a Russian historian of Stalin's great terror who was arrested for uncovering a mass grave of, of Stalin's own victims because the Russian authorities are trying to rewrite history to show Stalin as this great leader and, and not this mass murderer. And that is done to be a political benefit to Putin because he wants to rebuild himself in that strongman, czarist, imperialist tradition and to basically justify his many war crimes, whether they're in Ukraine or Syria. And so Ukrainians are living in that fear. And to have the president of the United States so clearly beholden to Putin by countless reports by now, and also to openly to have this pressure on their president saying, if you don't do this horrible, corrupt thing by, in, by inventing a scandal. And that's something that Ukrainians overwhelmingly voted for Zelensky to stop. Zelensky came in as promising to tackle corruption first and foremost. And the fact that Donald Trump was trying to drag him back into corruption is just, it's, it's the frustration in this, of this is just mind-blowing. And for my listeners, I want everyone to just imagine living in a nation that finds itself literally stuck under the boot of one major world power or another, a majority of their history, and what that must feel like. And then to vote as the people against that and for hope and for change and still to not be able to get out from under a, an authoritarian regime has got to be so gut-wrenching for the people of Ukraine. Yeah. When Trump was withholding that aid to Ukraine, soldiers were killed. Like, lives were lost. Ukraine faces an existential threat. And the worry is that if Trump manages somehow to win re-election in 2020, obviously that's going to be a disaster for countless vulnerable communities. One of those existential threats will be Ukraine, whether Trump is going to essentially let Putin invade the rest of Ukraine or at least, you know, maybe go even deeper into the country. I mean, that's a real possibility because what we've seen under Trump that we didn't see under Obama is that at least when Russia invaded Ukraine under Obama, Russia blatantly lied about it and tried to cover it up. But under Trump, Russia's not even bothering to cover up its aggression against Ukraine. Russia openly attacked Ukraine in, I think, international waters or Ukraine's waters, but right off of on the Kerch Strait, Russia openly attacked Ukraine and seized a ship and took dozens of sailors hostage. And it was just an open act of war against the country, where before Putin would at least have his whole propaganda machine go to great trouble of lying about their acts of war against Ukraine. So that's a, that's a major shift that's happened under Trump. And so the concern is that if Trump gets four more years, how much more of the country is Putin going to seize? And with Trump being so easily influenced by Putin, and we don't even know, we don't have the records of their phone calls. We don't know how often those guys are on the phone together. But it's very clear how easily persuaded Trump's been with falling in line with Putin's wish list on a variety of issues from Syria to Ukraine and so forth. 
But the worry is that Ukraine itself could fall, and that's a massive danger for the region for a number of reasons, including that in the post-Soviet states, Ukraine is one of the few big success stories of a country that has been able to move towards democracy. And now that it has Zelensky as a president, he's he speaks in Russian. He's a, he's a popular Russian-speaking comedian. And when he gives speeches calling for fighting corruption and calling for democracy, and, and he's giving those speeches in Russian, those speeches are heard across the region, including among Russians. And so that's planting important seeds to show people of that part of the world that are struggling against actual authoritarianism an alternative future. And so Ukraine is a, an important symbol of hope for that region. And so for that, we need Ukraine to succeed in order to spread that hope to other parts of that region that are struggling right now. If you're feeling hopeless right now, then you're missing the opportunity here. And the opportunity is immense. It's an exciting time for us to strengthen and build our communities locally and to build the solutions we want to see globally in our own neighborhoods where we live. And on, on my podcast, Gaslit Nation, we have a action guide on how to get started doing this. It's on gaslitnationpod.com. We have an action guide. I highly recommend that people subscribe to Gaslit Nation. It is a brilliant podcast. Thank you so much. But, but what we want to do is think larger than Trump. It's like we're not going to allow ourselves to fall back again. We want to Trump-proof our democracy. And we're going to do that because we have no choice. And we're going to do it together. Well, and I think part of that is we have to look at the past and what has driven us to this point to where we have Trump, but also think about what the future looks like. You know, we're not just going to wake up on November 9th and elect someone else, God willing, and all of our issues are just going to go away because Trump is not in office. We really have to systematically figure out what the next steps are past the election and what that means for us as, as citizens of the country. My biggest fear, though, is, and we're seeing it happen with a bunch of GOP politicians, including Trump, continuing to spread really, really horrible propaganda that not only is photoshopped or falsified, but also just continues to spread Islamophobia, hate, racism, xenophobia. What would you say to someone who comes across an image like that as far as how we need to fight propaganda? What about the people that don't have the luxury to seek out good information because they're just trying to survive paycheck to paycheck. So what comes across their desk might be something that they just buy into because they don't have the the time. I mean, I feel like it's such a luxury to be able to research because most people are just trying to make ends meet. Without question. And that is a danger because the more pressure that we're put under, the less time that we have to be civically engaged. So if you're forced into bankruptcy because of your medical bills, where does your time go in order to you know, fight for your rights in this country? That is the severity of the issue, is the threat is a multiplier. I would say that community, the people that support us with the struggles that we're already undergoing, whether it's facing poverty or medical bills that threaten to push us into poverty, joining a community is what's going to help you, and it's going to help support you emotionally, because all of us need to turn to each other now and refuse to abandon each other and show up for each other, no matter how dark things get. And if, if you study 
autocracy throughout history, there are successful resistance movements, and they're born out of communities. That's what makes artists and intellectuals, for instance, so dangerous, because they tend to hang out with each other at universities and theaters and other places. And that's why they're always liquidated first, because what they're really attacking, what the, what the autocrats really attacking is the community the community that brings those people together. Great things happen when people gather. Yes, exactly. So so I learn so much from the communities that I'm a part of, and they fact check the media fog that we're in. Because let's not forget, there's been a massive shrinking of newsrooms across the country. There's been a massive consolidation of corporate ownership of local news from what's left of it across the country. And so those who are left in newsroom jobs tend to be predominantly white males, and white people generally. And so we're getting our news from a white male lens. So it's not un until I go out with my community, people who are grassroots organizers who are working on the front lines and looking at the science, the data coming out from the ground issues, that's when I, my mind is blown with how much more united than divided we are across this country. And that's where your hope comes. That's where getting access to, to diverse information comes from. It's from your community. And make human contact. I think it's so important because when we're talking about community, I think we can slip into this online community that we mistake for human connection. Not mm -hmm. to say that we can't connect and truly resonate with those online, but I do think it's a lot easier to get lost in the wave of propaganda and lies if we don't have human interactions where, you know, show up for town halls. This is your country. Show up, speak to your leaders, make phone calls. If it's wine and sewing you love, gather your friends together for a sip and sew. Do whatever you can do to have human interaction, to hear firsthand from other people, people that are not necessarily like you, which is also important. Mm -hmm. You know, I was talking to someone the other day who is basically was a white supremacist who is now reformed, who can recognize the hurt and damage that she did when I asked her what changed her mind. She said she got a real job as a waitress and had to talk to people that were unlike herself. Um, and this was someone that was very calcified in her beliefs. So it's really important that we connect, that we take care of each other, that that all of these issues have a human result, and we have to remember that. We have to humanize these issues. And Andrea, I, I'm just so happy to be by your side, and I'm always here for you. If you need anything, you let me know. And thank you so much for being a part of Sorry Not Sorry. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. All persons are commanded to keep silent on pain of imprisonment. While the House of Representatives is exhibiting to the Senate of the United States Articles of impeachment against Donald John Trump, President of the United States. They refuse to allow the evidence and hear from the witnesses. They will not permit the American people to hear from the witnesses. And they lie and lie and lie and lie. Today, President Donald J. Trump spoke by telephone with President Vladimir Zelensky of Ukraine to congratulate him on his recent... Senate will be in order. The sergeant-at-arms will restore order in the gallery. And the scripture says, for the Lord loves justice and will not abandon his faithful ones. That the president claims monarchical powers. I can do whatever I want under Article 2, says he. And then acts on that. Defies everything. Defies the law to 
withhold aid from Ukraine, defies the law in a dozen different directions all the time, and lies about it all the time, and says to Mr. Cipollone here to lie about it. These facts are undeniable. I think it is appropriate at this point for me to admonish both the House managers and the President's counsel in equal terms uh, to remember that they are addressing the world's greatest deliberative body. Senator Lindsey Graham shaking the hand of lead House manager Adam Schiff, and we understand saying good job, really well spoken. Mitch McConnell has already lost his grip on his caucus. The rules that he um, made clear last night, he had the votes for, to not permit any of the evidence from the House investigation into the record. Uh, those have changed already. White House lawyers reportedly gathered and reviewed hundreds of documents that reveal extensive efforts to generate an after-the-fact justification for the hold on military assistance for Ukraine that had been ordered. One of the greatest tragedies of the Trump presidency is how quick he and the Republicans in government have been to throw our allies under the bus for their own perceived political gain. It's happening right now in Ukraine. It happened with the Kurds in Syria. He threatened this alliance with NATO. He belittled the United Nations. He sparked trade wars with China and made us the literal laughingstock of world leaders with his incompetence and his blatant grifting. And he's not even good at it. He gets caught every single time. But he doesn't care because he knows the cowardly GOP politicians in the Senate won't do a fucking thing about it. The Ukraine scheme is just one more mafia-like drug deal led by an insecure man trying to strong arm allies into doing his bidding, not for the people of the United States, but for the people of Trump Tower. He is backed by the weak-willed, cowardly Republicans who are too power-hungry to stand up to a man that every single one of them knows is dead wrong. It's pathetic. The GOP used to be a party with a backbone, a party you could at least respect, even if you couldn't agree with. Now it's been willingly bamboozled by a very, very small man. Today, Republican politicians, they're nothing. Worse than nothing. They are active participants in making America worse. And they claim to be the party of patriotism? No. Elected Republicans have made it the party of inadequacy in every possible way. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson, editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs, and music by Josh Cook and Alicia Eagle. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry Not